Hey everybody, Brad Stevens here, founder and CEO of Outsource Access. We help companies redefine how they scale with offshore affordable staff from the Philippines. Congrats to all fellow winners of the 2023 Real Leaders Impact Awards. We are proud to be among you. About 10 years ago, I woke up to a major growth problem in my last business. Cash was tight, staff was overwhelmed, and tasks were not getting done. Then I discovered the world of offshore virtual staff in the Philippines where English is their second language, so there is no communication or culture gap. I realized outsourcing wasn't just call centers, it was access to college-educated Filipinos to support sales, marketing, operations, customer service, bookkeeping, personal tasks, and more. And in fact, the first woman I hired in the Philippines at 23 is now an award-winning COO of our entire company. It inspired me to launch Outsource Access. One client and YPO member, Ali Jamal, shared their offshore virtual staff Edison automated processes and saved them over 50,000 per year in the first few weeks. It's about finally getting things done and staff focusing on higher value activities. We've grown by over 2,000% in just three and a half years and will double next year. To receive a complimentary outsourcing playbook customized for your industry and to connect with one of our team here at Outsource Access, just visit RedefineScale.com. That's RedefineScale.com or text the word SCALE to 770-954-8440. Two months after hiring my first staff, she sent me a picture of shoes she bought for low-income children because of the opportunity. And now we support thousands of families and the environment with United Nations SDG projects. I'm proud we've grown with impact. To learn more, visit RedefineScale.com. Imagine this January 1st, 2024, and you're the reason your organization is being ranked as a fastest growing impact company in Releaders Magazine. Hi, I'm Kevin Edwards, General Manager at Releaders and host of the Top 100 U.S. Business News Podcast, The Releaders Podcast. And I've conducted more interviews with impact CEOs alone this year than anyone else on earth because I believe in these people and I know how difficult it is for their companies to take on massive corporations with unlimited marketing budgets. So here's what we did with the impact awards. We have leveled the playing field with a ranking that measures by merit, not mass. So if that's you, if that's your company, if you apply, you'll receive exposure in Readers Magazine, tons of collaboration opportunities with the top impact brands on the list, and not to mention employee engagement opportunities to help with retention, productivity, and recruitment strategies throughout the rest of the year. Now, right now, I just got the list. Applications are already up 56% at this time last year, and over half of the applicants were certified B Corps. So make sure to apply before your competition does and before time runs out. The application's simple. It only takes a few minutes. And if you apply today, I'll also toss in a free magazine shipped directly to your office. And I'll also invite your CEO to make a personal appearance on my Top 100 U.S. Business News podcast, which will be streamed live to LinkedIn. Now, the late fee will be $595, so be sure to apply at realtors.com before 831. That's it for me. Now let's get to the show. Five, four, three, two, and one. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Ellers, and joining us today, folks, 
We have the Senior Vice President of In-State Partners and a Real Leaders Impact Collaborative member. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Rachel Stern. Rachel, how are you doing today? Thanks for having me, Kevin. Of course. Well, Rachel, I think you have a unique background that others may find value from today. And that's why we really where we want to start and kind of you know break it out from there. So tell me a little bit more about your background, entrepreneurship, tech, finance. Thinking back to your early days, Rachel, like what inspired you to pursue a career like this? So I have been really lucky in my life because I've always been really close to our family business. My grandmother was a Holocaust survivor, spoke seven languages, incredible woman, and nothing brought her more joy than playing crafts in Vegas and working. And she truly, from nothing, created a small but mighty commercial real estate empire in Denver, Colorado, um, which my dad then took over. And I grew up going around to all of these properties, meeting the tenants, knowing their kids, knowing their stories. Many of their tenants are immigrant families who are starting something new, um, often doctors and lawyers in their home country, and they come over and they are starting a restaurant or they're starting a dry cleaning business or they're starting something that is totally entrepreneurial in spirit and providing for their families and having access to those stories and those people, my whole life has really allowed me to see the value in human relationships when doing business. And my grandmother and my father have modeled that for me my whole life. And I'm a little bit of a competitive person. So in college, I became involved in campaigns, um, which to me is the great equalizer. I, I tell all the 19 to 22 year olds, I know that they should do a campaign for a summer because Nowhere else can someone without any qualifications run something like finance or speech writing or you know logistics. It's such a, an incredible way to learn business and also not get paid anything and also have real stakes in something. So I did a couple of campaigns in college thought that was going to be my future. I loved the hustle. I loved the competitiveness of it. I loved the peer group. Um, and when I graduated from college, I was sort of on the fence about what I wanted to do. It wasn't really a campaign season just yet. It was sort of going to ramp up in the fall. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to assess other career options too. And so I ended up uh, doing this program called the Coro Fellowship in Public Affairs, which is a very niche um, but slightly cultish group of people. There's five of them across the country. It's in LA and Pittsburgh and San Francisco and New York and St. Louis, Missouri. And it's basically a 12 to 16 person cohort. And for nine months, you're put into a different sector every month. And you're essentially a management consultant. You are showing up. You don't know where you're going until the night before. And the whole program is about asking questions to orient yourself to new situations and then completing a project within a very finite period of time. Hmm. And so it exposed me to nonprofits and labor unions and another campaign and government and for-profit. And the for-profit placement was actually at Advantage Capital, which is where I've been working for the last 10 and a half years. 
Um, and the way that Advantage does their investing is, is a, it's a private equity firm, but it's got a very unique impact-driven thesis where they work with governments to incentivize private industry to bring capital into geographic areas that typically don't have access to it. And they do that utilizing federal and state tax credits. So programs called the New Market Tax Credit. They do a lot of small business lending. It's a debt and equity shop. And they had, over their 30 years of doing this investing, created a network of relationships, mostly lobbyists, but also consultants and political operatives across the country that were helping them create these programs, protect these programs, and identify new opportunities for these programs. And so my Coro Fellow project, which was a month long, was figuring out how to monetize this network. We were, there was a huge cash outflow, as you can imagine, from January to June, which is when state legislative sessions happen. And then we weren't really tapping into that holistic asset beyond that. And so in-state partners and the thesis for in-state partners was born in that first month and really came to be that we recognized, I recognized that there were very few companies, both big and small, that had access to a real-time national network of people that could identify risks and opportunities and give them real insights from the ground. So it's it was this interesting overlap of politics, which I knew I wanted to go into, business, which I was very much learning in real time, but had in my blood from my family, um, and strategy, which I've always loved. And, and we've since grown it and we can get into sort of the types of company we worked with, but it, it has created this incredible Venn diagram that I feel very lucky to sort of sit at the nexus of, of, of lobbying and strategy and finance and policy. And it's a really interesting like dynamic and dichotomy and really just think about stakeholders in the business and how important they are and how they can influence your growth. How how does your organization think about uh, the the companies that they want to work with, and um, I guess government's role uh, in developing a good relationship with those businesses? Like, how do how do you think about the stakeholders in a company? Yeah, I, you and I have had a chance to talk a little bit about this, but I I sort of beat this drum that there is no more impactful of an investment than a company that makes government better. And by better, I mean have access um, and ease of use for more constituents that allows people to access services that both they are entitled to but didn't even know they were entitled to and deliver those services seamlessly and often directly to their phone. So getting rid of paper processes, getting rid of manual in-person processes, um, those should have gone away a long time ago. And frankly, the pandemic accelerated that movement more towards digital services for government. And, and we've been very lucky to sort of ride that wave with a lot of our portfolio companies. But the reality is, is that GovTech, which is, you know, sort of what I do, it's, it's become a term that's uh, not always super well defined, but is sort of the thesis of, of the investing that I do is a classic public-private partnership. And Europe has been doing public-private partnerships for decades, right? When you think about public-private partnerships, you think about infrastructure, you think about roads and bridges and water systems and these really tactile 
large scale things that are hard to maintain, but are required for society to function well. And I would argue that technology should be on that list because more and more government needs to be able to communicate and offer things to their citizens and citizens need to feel trust in their government. And if we can come up with technologies that sit at the middle of that, that make everyone look and feel good, I think that's when you have a really well-functioning society. And, and to me, I guess when I think about that, I think about like the traditional, not the certified benefit corporations, but like a traditional benefit corporation, like the Port of San Diego. It is something that is necessary to for-profit entity, but the city and the state like fund it because it's needed for public transportation and commerce in the area. Um, I guess my question for you would be thinking about some of the challenges that uh, you know the nation, our nation, that are really facing right now. Where, and, and I guess, what companies are you working with, and how do you form those partnerships? Uh, to make sure that they have capital um, to to really grow their business. Help me, I guess, maybe provide us a little bit more context about the companies that you work with. Sure, and, and that probably involves sort of going back to in-state at, at its inception. So when we started in-state, we recognized that there were a lot of technology companies, not necessarily startups, but not big at the time, that had political coverage in the coast. So we worked very closely with Lyft for example, and Hims and Hers, which is a telehealth company, and um, Square, now Block, these technology companies that really were confident in California, New York, and Texas, but didn't necessarily have the internal assets to cover a Missouri or a Tennessee or a Nevada. And the reality is, is that there are 50 states and they're all doing their own thing. Um, they're learning from each other, and you know, you, and as a result, there's always a risk of contagion of bad policy and contagion of good policy too. Um, but they're all these like tiny separate markets, and it can be very hard as a company to get your arms around it unless you are coming out of the gate prioritizing policy at your core. So we started as sort of a traditional government affairs consulting shop. Then very early on, we connected with a guy named John Thompson, who is the CEO of Pay It. Um, look it up, it's a great company. John had gone to the DMV and he'd waited in line for hours and was like, why are we still going to the DMV? This is a horrible process, right? We need these things. We have to renew our license plates. We have to renew our license. We have to you know, get the, our fishing permits, but why are we going in person and why is it all in paper and why can't I just have this on my phone? Um, and that really resonated with me because I also hate the DMV. And um, it turns out, so do pretty much everyone. So does pretty much everyone. So John was pre-product, <laughs> pre-revenue, but he had this great idea. And he was an entrepreneur that I recognized that I could learn a ton from. And so we got the okay to come up with a deal where no one was trusting me with their money when I was 22, but that we could come up with this long-term partnership with John that would enable him to access this network of decision makers across the country. And we could earn into some part of his company when we helped him grow. And that really became our model of partnership with these companies. And, and we've since grown to a significant portfolio 
of similar companies. We like to work with SaaS players, so companies that have a software that easily scales into legacy systems, mm-hmm. not customize its plug and play. Um, it allows um, the software to be up and running very, very quickly. Um, and and some, some of our companies have a services component, but SaaS is really a sweet spot for us. Um, they have a couple of customers already under their belt and they're ready to scale, but don't necessarily know how to do that. Don't really know the product market fit for the next three, five, 10 markets they should go into. Um, and have killer entrepreneurial teams. And that's a little bit harder to pinpoint, right? That's not as quantifiable. Uh, but I had a mentor of mine in the investing world describe one of the founders we did invest, founding teams that we did invest in as they're guys that I would like to have a beer with and they're guys that I would happily leave my kids with. And I think that there is something really to be said about that interpersonal touch of entrepreneurs who are great business people, but really great people, people. And so when we look to invest and work with companies, I am looking for that really human element, humble, smart, hungry, ideally have a little, have a previous success under their belt, but that isn't even really necessary um, and are just good people to work with because this business is hard. And it takes a really long time to scale. And unless an entrepreneur, an entrepreneurial team is seriously committed to GovTech and changing the world through their technology, it can get old really fast. Hmm, interesting. And so help me understand, because I'm, I'm really trying to learn this model and kind of how your approach is different. Um, you all, just so I have a right, you know, if I'm an entrepreneur and I'm uh, in GovTech, I'm enabling faster DME transactions, things like that. Um, what you'll do is you'll connect me with a network of policymakers and people in your network, right? You talked about monetizing your network uh, in exchange for a percentage of the of the company. Is that accurate? Yeah. So we have evolved into sort of the traditional venture model where we are investing capital into those companies. But then on top of it, we are coming up with mutually agreed upon metrics of success that allow us to earn into a little bit more equity for helping them for advising them to grow. And that can look like a lot of different things for different companies. It can be market size, it can be contract size, it can be partnerships, um, it can be legislation. The reality is, is that over the last decade, we've built this tool chest of capabilities that help companies grow and, and a different sort of assortment of those tools is the right fit for each company. Um, it's finding the companies that know they need the tools that are really ready to scale, right? That they want 10 contracts in the next year, not one. Um, And don't necessarily wanna build it internally just yet. Don't necessarily wanna hire a a 10 person government affairs team that is also a sales team. Um, So we just really help get those companies to the next level, utilizing that network of folks where I can call my fabulous lobbyist in South Carolina and say, hey, we're hearing rumblings about this thing, whether it's a bill or whether it's sort of a big political move. Um, Are you hearing the same thing? Is this something we should be worried about? Is this something we should engage on? And sometimes they'll say, yeah, this is real. And if you wanna have a seat at the table, you need to start getting involved right now. Hmm. And more often than not, they'll say, well, you know, this is the third time this bill has been introduced. The sponsor is from a different party than the majority. 
Um, there's not really any legs behind this. And frankly, if you engage, best case scenario, nothing happens and doesn't go anywhere. Worst case scenario is you suddenly bring attention to something you don't want to have happen. So keep your powder dry and I'll let you know when you need to engage. And that's, that is not something that any other company has really at the same scale that we do. Interesting. Yeah. It seems like a little, like you're also getting a lot of intelligence. Um, you know, you're getting a lot of feet on the ground, a lot of bespoke uh, commentary or just insights on what's happening and really from experts, exactly, uh, which is incredibly valuable for an organization. Um, what, what, I'm just out of curiosity, like of all the companies that you've been working with, um, have you found um, like a, a, a formula for success, you know, an organization that really does it right, a partnership that's been very effective? What's like your strongest argument for, for I guess, for your, your company? Um, if I had that secret sauce, I would be flying in a private jet all the time. <laughs> so I'll let you know when I've, <laughs> you know, really nailed it. Um but yeah, I mean, of course, I would say that I have worked with companies that have been wild successes, and I've worked with companies that, if they haven't just died, they just haven't really grown. Um, I think there are a couple of couple of things that I see as sort of commonalities between the really successful ones. One I talked about is, of course, the entrepreneur, and any investor will tell you that that's not that's not news. I have my own series of sort of internal and exterior criteria that I look for when I'm working with an uh, with a entrepreneur or a founder. Um, I really like, I, I wanna like spending time with them because in our work, not just as investors, but also as these sort of sales and growth partners, we spend a lot of time with these teams, probably more so than your average bear investor. And so it's really nice if you also like them sense of humor, ease of interaction. Do I want to, you know, would I be comfortable going for a walk with this person? Like how much do I like this person interpersonally is sort of my number one. Number two is can I sum up what their product is in one sentence? I think often entrepreneurs are so in it with their products and especially in government where there are so many sticky sort of naughty problems to work through. I think more often than not, when I see a, a pitch in DevTech, it's way more complicated than it needs to be. It's a problem and it's a solution. And if I can't, after the first three times meeting an entrepreneur, say what the problem and say what the solution is, I can't invest in them. Mm. Because the reality is, is that in government sales, you have 30 seconds to convince someone, sometimes less. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's really no different than an elevator pit. But if you can't sit down with the governor's chief of staff or a legislator and say, I know that you have a tremendous problem with constituent engagement, you're doing it on an Excel sheet or you're doing it on paper, you have legislative aides that are changing every year and the stuff you are sending out isn't resonating, right? It's not personalized. It's not specific to your issues, maybe responsive to one particular thing that your constituents are upset or excited about, but it's not really effective communication. Every legislator in the world recognizes that problem. 
And if you just say, how's your constituent engagement? They'll say, hard. <laughs> Great, that's the problem. That's the one sentence problem. What's the one sentence solution? A CRM for constituent engagement, which is what IndieGov, which is one of our portfolio companies does. It is a much more customized, thoughtful, efficient, technologized way of interacting with constituents. It's not used for campaigns, it's exclusively for people in office. And it's how do you ensure that people are feeling heard and seen, and you are also able to have the data of who's, who's looking to engage with your office. To me, that's a no-brainer. One sentence problem, one sentence solution. I see 50 companies for every one that talk in the weeds in such a way that I would see a, a legislator's eyes glaze over if I tried to pitch it. And I've got a pretty good sense now, having pitched a lot of things, uh, of what's going to make someone's eyes light up and what's not. And it's honestly not the technology. It's just how it's pitched. Yeah. And so that's what I look for in a company. Yeah, And go into that a little bit more. I think yeah. that'd be very valuable for like a lot of uh, entrepreneurs listening to this. It's like, hey, like, what are some maybe key phrasing, strategies, formatting, templates, like how I should think about my ele elevator pitch or my one sentence that you know really defines and summarizes my company in its value proposition? I think that the companies that have the hardest time scaling in this business are the hammers in search of the nail. Mm. Are the ideas that a constituent wants something, but the legislator or the agency head doesn't know they have a problem yet. And I'll, I'll use an example with pay it actually, um, which is now way exceeded all expectations and dreams and they're growing and they're incredible. And in the early days, when we had this idea for an app that allowed you to conduct transactions with the DMV, uh, no one in government knew that they needed something mobile. That was the keyword. This was a this was on your mobile device. It was on an app, and they said, "Well, you know, you can access Minnesota.gov on your phone. What do you mean we need an app? What does mobile mean? I, we don't need that." And we, as constituents, of course, knew we needed that, right? We were all using apps all the time, but that hadn't really filtered up yet, and it hadn't become a pain point for them. They hadn't gotten in trouble for lack of access or ADA compliance or how difficult it was to access dmv.gov, no one was pressuring them. Everyone just knew it sucked. Mm -hmm. And we spent a good two years just trying to prove the use case. Again, we knew it was a problem. As constituents and users, we knew this was a solution that made sense. But we were, look, we were trying to create a burning platform for the government buyer that wasn't there yet. And, and it wasn't that long until it was there. But you can spend a lot of time spinning your wheels trying to prove they have an issue. My advice to entrepreneurs who are trying to get into this work is identify a very obvious problem. That's often things that are being done on paper. That's sort of my thesis is, as an investor. Things that are done in person and done on paper, everyone knows that's an issue, right? The government has a printing problem. It's, it's horrible out there. There's a ton of waste. None of these systems communicate with each other. There's no cross-functionality between agencies. Um, everything exists in a, its own little stack. And that's a real problem for government. Um, a, it means that people have different profiles across different agencies. It means that there's a lot of redundancies. 
um, a tremendous amount of waste. And if these systems could talk to each other as they can with software, and we know all the time through all the apps we're already using and, and social media that we're already using, uh, government knows that's an issue. So when I think about sort of the future of GovSAC, I think it's companies that are solving for that issue. Your question was really about pitching it. Um, I always like to start with a question. And it's a question around the thesis of the problem. So it's, for example, with pay it, it's, hey, um, how are things going with your DMV right now? Any, any challenges that you guys are facing? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's been really hard. COVID shut us down and we've, you know, there's a 48 week backlog on licensing and we can't hire enough people and we just are at our wits end on how to deliver these services. Mm. Okay, mm -hmm. next question, next question, next question. Someone um, very smart in this world described it to me as instead of saying, hey, your legs look tired, here's a chair. <laughs> you say, hey, your legs look tired. If you were to sit on something, what would it look like? Oh, would there be armrests? How tall would it be? Would you be lying down? Would it be leather? Would it be cleanable? Would it be fold upable? Right. And you're asking them these questions that are actually going to get the specs of your product. And then at the end, you can say, oh my God, you want a foldable green chair with a backrest? We have that right here. Let me show you how it works. But they've gotten there themselves. So, so. I think that's the best way entrepreneurs can really get their product in front. It's identifying the problem and then leading with questions so that the buyer recognizes them as the solution. That's great. And, um, you know, so much of this is, I guess, what I hear in my area is just like how slow government is and how the private sector can come in and help accelerate that, make things a little bit more efficient. Um, you know, you have some of the brightest minds on this stuff. And I think a clear example for us here in California is the DMV. You know, they just you know, changed the interface. And I think Deloitte was working on it. They, um, you know, they made some significant changes to the interface, the DMV website, storage, database systems, all that. And that really took someone to kind of get that across um, to the government to get done. Um, what I'm curious about um, is what you were talking a little bit more about in the beginning, um, building relationships, trust, you get a beer with them, they can watch your kids, you know, to you over your experience, Rachel, what are some of the key things to you that build trust with an entrepreneur? I want to spend as much time in person with them as I can. I think post pandemic, there's still a tendency for Zoom and a lot of, that makes life easier in a lot of ways. And it means that you're not getting as many side conversations as you would if you were sitting with someone all day. So before we invest in a company, we always try to make sure that we at least have a full afternoon and evening with the entrepreneurial team. And that is coming up with, it's not just, you know, sitting around playing hacky sack. I don't know why I said that. That's a, that's a weird thing to be no doing. Yeah, no, no one does that. Even in the 90s, no one really did that. Um, it, 
but it is, it's sitting down, it's coming up with a strategy together. It's understanding how they're thinking about their strategy and how that's the same or different than we would be thinking about their strategy. Um, it's making sure that they understand how hard this is. I spend a lot of time telling people no, and it's horrible. <laughs> I wish I could say yes all the time, but the reality is with government, you have to say no a lot. That's not a good fit. Legislative ha session is happening now. No, it's not a good time to reach out. No, the budget cycle is not in a place where they can add another $2.5 million on here. We're going to need to go someplace else. It's a lot of real-time no's to get to the one yes. And you have to make sure a team's comfortable with that, um, that they're not just going to push and push and push and push. Because one really surefire way to lose a contract is having an entrepreneur repeatedly call an agency. There is a way to do this, and it is through warm relationships, and it is an in-person meeting, then it's a demo with the right people on the call, then it's figuring out your champion, then it's working through usually your contact on the ground to track that process through to an RFP. But it is not emailing every four days to understand where things are in process. People stop responding, and then you've lost before you've even begun. So. So comfort with the sort of speed and slowness of this of this industry is is important to me. And I have to feel like I can tell them yes or no without them getting upset. Um, other things that build trust. Of course, a track record always helps. It's easier to trust someone with your money when you know they've been successful before. Um, and it's digging into why they're doing that, why they're the right fit for it. I think that the people who have come into this industry, and, and this is probably the same for any entrepreneur, but particularly for GovTech because it's so hard, they have to be really committed to the public good. Of course, they want to be profitable, but at the end of the day, they want to be in it because they want to transform a system and they want to do it in a way that they're uniquely qualified to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that with that right fit, Money also comes. Right. It, it, what's interesting to me is like the dynamic between investors and entrepreneurs, like that, those early relationship building opportunities are crucial. A lot of them are make or break for if, uh, you know, whether you're a private equity firm or a VC in terms of can they trust you? And a lot of the times I've been hearing, at least on my end, I'd be curious to learn, learn like what your experience has been, but for the entrepreneurs, especially the ones that come in heavy headed, I have all the experience, you don't, you don't know what it's like to run a business, things like that can really damage a relationship. What are some of the core like attributes you'd say that are total no's for you? Red flags. When it comes to red flags, yeah, when it comes to entrepreneurs. Um I mean, you've listed a lot of them. I would say right now in the poster 2020 venture capital glut, mm. it's people who still have enormous valuations and almost no revenue. Um, and even if they have revenue, it's not repeatable revenue. So maybe mm. they have two different agencies, but they don't really have a thesis on which agency they're going to go run after and do it 50 more times. Um, I see a lot of companies that are, have have very, very, very high valuations for what they have and and really believe that they deserve it. 
And they probably do. The reality for me is that I'm a, I'm a relatively um, conservative investor. And I've now seen enough cycles where companies have to take down rounds. And that's the worst case scenario. I really love an entrepreneur that is priced fairly. So that's sort of number one. I always try to get that out. Number two is they have an idea on of how their product can work with government, but they don't really have a use case yet. So it's a pivot from a totally random example, but it's a pivot from a pet food provider who thinks that they can get contracts in um, parks and wildlife because they think that there's some Venn diagram overlap. They're not quite sure what it is yet, but they've heard government's great and they really want to get into it. That's not a good fit for us. A, too hard to scale, too hard for us to hit our mutually agreed upon levels of success. Um, but two, it goes back to that one sentence thesis. Unless you can really say why your product is a perfect fit for not only government, but this very specific government agency and their very specific problem, no chance. Um, and three is their thesis is to just respond to RFPs. We want to work with entrepreneurs who want to be proactive, who want to create the RFPs over a long period of time because they have such a great product that they can work directly hand in hand with some of these agencies to come up with the chair that they want and then provide the product that fits that need. So it, it's small thinking. It's, we just want contracts. We don't, it's not, we want to build a partnership with government and we want to build a partnership that will transform a system and make it easier for everyone. That's a no for me too. That makes a lot of sense. In your experience, Rachel, in terms of like leadership in the companies that have grown um, to be successful organizations in your portfolio, are there any like like commonalities between uh, good leaders as opposed to maybe the companies uh, who aren't growing as well? This, I mean, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself for the last question about real leaders, but no, please do. Um, but I but I was thinking about that question, of course, and. I've been really lucky to be mentored by and work for some excellent leaders and work with some excellent leaders. And a lot of the commonality I see is the leaders that make work fun. I'm kind of a serious person. I like have a deep, dark sense of irony, but like at my core, I'm, I'm pretty serious. And the people that I work with best and who get the best work out of me are the ones who make me laugh. And the ones who do a lot of team building and the ones who make it clear to each and every one of their employees how they fit into the broader puzzle and do that through sort of positive reinforcement, not why are you doing this? It's wrong. You haven't, you know, you haven't met the right metrics or you're micromanaging or you're an idiot. These leaders lead through positivity and lead through a sense of humility and lead with a sense of humor. And to me, those are the ones that are successful because there are so many things that are hard. I keep, I keep just repeating how hard this business is. There are so many things that are hard in this business that if you can't laugh about it or see the irony in it, you're dead in the water. Right. No, definitely. Yeah. I think a lot of that comes with experience too, right? You know, just the, the constant trials and failures and errors 
that uh, us as entrepreneurs and leaders experience. But, you know, someone hit me with this the other day, Rachel, is, you know, a lot of leaders had great traits as the one that you just had mentioned, but maybe use them in a way that damaged the world. Maybe Mm. use them in a way that uh, crippled humanity. To you, what is your definition of a real leader? A real leader is someone who knows when it's time to step back and let the people around them shine and build. Gives them an audacious goal to reach for and then step back, steps back and trusts them and is there to offer advice and thoughts and guidance. But at the end of the day, hires a team that's so much stronger for the sum of its parts than the individual who's setting the agenda. Someone who's comfortable with that dynamic. Powerful. For Rachel Stern, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, know when it's time to step back and always keep it real. Thanks, Rachel. Hey, Releaders, thanks again for listening to this amazing episode. And if you're someone like me who goes all the way to the end just to make sure I can extract as much information, education, and inspiration out of every single interview, might I suggest you check out our magazine. If you go online to Realtors.com today, you're going to get the first 30 days for free where you're going to be able to access all of our magazines courses, and live events from some of the top thought leaders around the world. All you have to do is go online to realleaders.com and click the subscribe button in the top right corner to get your free 30-day trial right now. Again, that's real-leaders.com. Thanks again for being a real leader and always keep it real.